I want you to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 30, okay? Proverbs chapter 30. You know, we are talking about a, this concept of being small but wise. And, and as we look through this passage again, we're going to see our third animal, the locust, and uh, we're going to talk about that. There's going to be some interesting things we're going to learn, but the application, I think, is going to be really rich and helpful for us. And we're going to see this principle actually alive in the early church. Small but wise. You know, the early church was small. If you were to, if you were to have been Jesus and trying to choose 12 men that you knew that one day you would die, rise again, and ascend to your father, and you were done your earthly ministry, your earthly call, and now you were going to entrust that ministry to 12 men, would you have done that with Peter, James, John, Andrew, and the like? Would you have done that? Many of them, the names I just mentioned to you, they were fishermen. They weren't well-educated. Most Hebrew children, when they reached the age of 12 and they were called to teach the word, as the 12 disciples were eventually called to do, that 12-year-old would now come under the tutelage of a rabbi. Fishermen, called in their 20s, maybe 30s, maybe some of them were in their late teens, but probably 20s and 30s. A tax collector. He is like the gum that sticks to the foot of your, or to the bottom of your shoe. The chosen as a, a, there's a, in my opinion, a fine job with uh, Matthew. Uh, lovable guy, God really changes him. But Jesus chose 12 extremely unlikely, insignificant men to turn his ministry over to. And something about those men God used so he turned the world upside down. Acts chapter 17, the accusation the Thessalonians had against the churches, these men, Paul and his entourage, these men have come to do what? To turn the world upside down. Church, that ministry of turning the world upside down has been given to us. But we need to realize this is not about us. We are small. We are insignificant. We're not the sharpest tool in the shed. We are not the smartest. We are not the, the best looking or the bravest. You know, there's something that when we look at ourselves, we can even experience a sense of inadequacy, but we have been called to something that is utterly huge, and that is to be the yeast in the lump that leavens the entire lump. And that lump we discovered was the world. The kingdom of God, which is in us, will impact, thoroughly impact this entire world. Twelve disciples began simply living out their faith and proclaiming that faith. And it started with Jerusalem and then Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And we are beginning, we are experiencing that to the ends of the earth. But God chose Something so small, 12 men, that's it, 12. Others began to follow, but 12 men. And God is in this process of turning this world upside down. God loves to take the insignificant things or people of this world 
and do something amazing that we're going to talk about this morning to be able to highly impact their generation. In Daniel chapter 2, it says it's actually a dream that God gave Nebuchadnezzar. And in that dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw a rock carved out of a large mountain. That rock destroyed the image. I'm not going to get into the image or the meaning of all of this, except to say this. In that dream, he saw after it was destroyed, that rock became the largest mountain, and it filled the whole earth. It filled the whole earth. Something so small filled the whole earth. Small but wise. Church, how can we, as small as we are, maybe as insignificant as we are, as weak as we are, how can we be wise? And we're, we're taking some of these principles and then we are applying them to this idea, this concept of being world changers. Now, it says in Proverbs 30, verses 24 through 28, and I've read that a couple of times. I'm not going to read all the verses today, but I want to remind you, the ants. The ants worked for and invested in the future. And we saw then how that applied to us as we invest in people who are eternal. And and we see that Jesus did that, and now we are called to do that. Investing in people. The rock badger, he lives where others cannot, and that actually keeps him safe. And can I say this, that when the church rises up and lives a lifestyle of constantly rejoicing in God, because the world can't do that, they might give lip service to it, but they do not live their lives and daily declare the goodness of God, regardless of the circumstances that they live in that day. But we have been we, we've been called, we have been chosen, we now have, we've been rescued from the world, and God promises that all things will work together for our good. Is this not true, church? Is this true? Yes. Is this true, church? Say yes, amen. This is true. And so as a result, we can daily praise God and walk in that rejoicing. Church, I'm going to tell you that if you can live out that principle, it will allow you to rise above every single problem that you face. And here's the truth. There is no such thing as a utopian society, regardless of what Engel and Marx says. We cannot live in that utopian society because of the problem of sin. Sin has broken this world. But still, Christ came to redeem a people. So even though we're fallen... We have been empowered to be able to live above these circumstances in a way that truly honors him. And when the world looks on, they see a picture of something that they want, they long for, or at least should. A people constantly praising God, living in that place like the rock badgers of safety. And this praising God regularly will guard your hearts, church. But the world will look on. And they will see what is so different about this person, the way they live their life, the way they talk, constantly giving praise to God, constantly pointing people to the goodness of God. That's a daily perspective and therefore a daily choice that we have to make. Today, we're going to be looking at the locust, the locust. Mm. 
In Proverbs 30, verse 27, it says this, locusts have no king, yet they advance together in ranks. Locusts have no king, but they advance together in ranks. I'm going to go ahead and is this set for me to... All right, let's, let's try this. Maybe if we could kill these lights right here, as long as I can read my notes. All right, I'm doing my best to... All right. Um, interesting. So, okay. So I'm going to have you because... Uh, I, okay, I'm going to have you advance it for me, Okay. All right, awesome. This is a picture of a a, a simple locust. He is not brown. I'm going to get to why he is not brown in just a moment, but these locusts generally will live singular. They'll live by themselves. They are not very social. They eat, generally they will eat about their body weight each day. But there's something that happens, and I'm not going to get into that right now. I'm going to get into it just in just a little while. But there is something that happens that then causes them to swarm. They are about three inches. If you could go to the next slide, three inches. You can see them in this man's hand. I'm assuming they're dead. But, I mean, they don't bite you. They won't hurt you. But the truth is they are ugly creatures, especially when they swarm. Look at the next picture here. Okay, can I just tell you this? Let's go to the next slide. They are covering the tree. They're covering the ground. And then the next one, Daniel, and there they are just covering. I don't know if that's a town or a farm in the distance. They are covering that field. Can I tell you this? They, this, this uh, last year, 2020, Kenya experienced a swarm. Because something happens in that Lone Ranger locust that it's like a gear shifts and they become social. It's called the gregarious stage. They become social creatures. They will swarm. They will swarm to as many as 70 billion, which is one and a half times the size of New York City. Can you imagine this? They eat their body weight in food every day. Apparently, as I did some research on this, if they are, if 70 million would consume 300 million pounds of vegetation every day. Now, a modest swarm, and I imagine Kenya experienced this, 40 million, a whole lot less, right? They'll eat as much as 35,000 people. 35,000 people. Kenya was devastated last year with this. Not only was Kenya experienced, they're a poor nation and they were experiencing poverty and uh, lack of food, but now with these locusts, it was devastating. There is something about these locusts. They have no king, and yet when they enter into that gregarious stage, that social stage, something about them changes. And they do not need a king They take their cues from one another, and they move forward. Joel chapter 2, verse 7, says this. It says, they each march in line, nor do they deviate 
from their paths. They have an ability to work together and be unified. And this church is central to world revival. Not that the locusts do this, but the church does this. That we be unified and that we work together. So his point is very simply, even though the locust has no king, because generally, in order for there to be organization, like if you've studied leadership, if you observe the workplace, you need a leader or a supervisor that's going to direct people so everybody works together, so that you stay together. But the, the, the author's point here is that locusts don't need that. And we're going to get into why something happens very interesting, that they actually discovered within the last few years. John 17, verse 23, says this. Jesus, during his high priestly prayer, that right be, the night that he was betrayed, he prays this prayer that we discover in chapter 17. And it says this in verse 23. I in them and you in me May they be brought to complete unity. Church, can you say that phrase with me? Complete unity. Complete unity. And when they're brought to complete unity, why does he pray this? So that. That's actually how the Greek reads. There's a cause and effect relationship. Complete unity so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. That when the church reaches this unity, <coughs> living together in harmony, in peace, in love, when they do this, it says, the, Jesus says, the world will eventually realize that Jesus is the Messiah, that God the Father sent him. Why? Because he loves them. Church, we are called to be a picture of God's love for his church. When we're in complete unity, then we will see world revival. Then we will truly see the yeast thoroughly mixed in and impacting the entire lump of dough. Complete unity. I don't know if you follow um, sports very much or not, but something I remember back in 2004, and Cole, you're the basketball buff in, in this church, and maybe you remember the Lakers played the Pistons. The Los Angeles Lakers played the Detroit Pistons. Does anybody happen to remember that series? The, yeah, Cole, you do. Uh, here's something that's interesting to note. The Lakers had possibly the two best players in the league, possibly. They had Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal. Kobe Bryant, a shooting guard, uh, Shaquille O'Neal, a center, and probably one of the biggest centers to play the game. I mean, the guy wasn't just tall, but he was big. I think he wore a size 23 shoe. That's more than twice my size. Huge. <laughs> Huge. If you ever go to the RD, RDV complex, is that the name of it? Uh, they have some some of the basketball player Orlando Magic's basketball player shoes laid out there. Uh, now I saw this a couple of years ago, um, but when they when they they show you Shaq's huge, oh my goodness, the guy was the, a monster. 
But Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant got into a feud. And they began to bicker with one another over a number of things, but really it was all about self-importance and who is the best player and who should be fed the ball the most and so on and so forth. I'm simplifying this. They had brought on that very year, 2003, now 2004 because it spans the end of 2003, beginning of 2004. They brought on some really excellent players, a little bit older and bringing on those older players who were excellent players, hopefully training some of the younger they went into the playoffs clearly the favorite against the Detroit Pistons. The Detroit Pistons, by the way, that's with uh, Hamilton and Ben Wallace and Chauncey Billups. They did not have any real stellar players. I mean, they were good. But do you know the difference between the two teams? The vast difference. And Phil Jackson, by the way, who had coached uh, Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls to six championships, he was coaching the LA Lakers. I mean, the deck was stacked against the Pistons. But the Pistons won four games to one. How on earth did they do that? Here's how they did it. They knew how to sacrifice self-importance and play for the betterment of the team. They had amazing teamwork. They were excellent in defense, but they, I mean, they, they would not score high points. The LA Lakers would score off the charts. And they had, an, they had probably the best offense in the league, but not the Detroit Pistons. But the Detroit Pistons, apart from their defense, they worked together as a team. They knew how to be unified. And I'm going to just tell you this. In unity, you have to get rid of arrogance and you have to get rid of selfish ambition and this desire to be on stage, this desire to be the guy that's fed the ball at the, at the last second. Now, granted, you've got to have a go-to guy, but when you have that mentality, hey, when the chips are down, I'm the man that will pull this team through. But when you work together as a team, you understand hey, no one is lifted higher than the rest. Even when Michael Jordan played, the most, one of the best players ever to play, he, the thing that uh, Phil Jackson said about him was that when he played on either side of the ball, either side, either team, he would always make his team better. Not because he was the best, but because he knew how to make others better. Teamwork is so important, so crucial. Getting rid of arrogance, selfish ambition, and that need for the spotlight. Humility, therefore, and serving are key ingredients to teamwork. But here's my question. The world knows this. I just gave you an example in which they were able to do that at least to the degree enough where they were able to beat the highly favored team. Not just beat them, but beat them four games to one in the finals, NBA finals. So the world understands these concepts. I'm not saying they know how to live in it real well. Maybe some. The idea of humility and this idea of self-sacrifice, serving, love. Jesus said this. He said, the world will know you are my disciples by what? 
By how much you know. No, no. Uh, but by what? By, by what excellent public speakers you are. Now, they'll know you are my disciples by your love. And love defers to others. But see, again, the world kind of gets this. So why would they look onto the church and the picture that we get is when the church is doing this in complete unity, the world will step back and say, wow. We're going to see, in just a moment, we're going to see a picture of this in the book of Acts. And how the church did this, and the world stepped back and said that, wow. Okay, maybe, maybe not verbatim, that's not what they said. But you get the picture. What is it then about the church, about us, that is different than the world? I'm going I'm to just highlight two things, and I'm going to focus on the second. Number one, we need to realize that try as hard as we may, neither the church nor the world can truly be humble and love one another perfectly. There is this issue called sin. There is this issue called the flesh that caters to sin, longs for sin. And even though it is crucified in the Christian, we can still want it. And so Paul says, I die daily. Because he knows that he's been called to love, but it is so hard because of that, what he calls the flesh or the sinful nature, as the NIV translates it. So I'm going to tell you this. The main problem, but we all face it, is sin. But can I tell you something? Here now begins the, to, the divide, the difference between the world and the church, or at least should be, and that is the gospel. You see, that's the very reason why Jesus came to this earth, because he came to die on the cross for our sin. That was his, that was his main focus, his main purpose. He knew one day, probably around the age of 33, he would die, but he would die for the sins of the world. And that cross then, his death for my sin, would now be a substitution for me, in which Jesus was punished for my sin. He was punished for your sin. There is something hap that happens then that we begin to see in the resurrection, this power of God that is unleashed Upon that which is broken, death is a result of sin. It's part of the curse. Jesus suffered that, but he was raised from the dead. That very same power that raised Jesus from the dead now is able to make you alive because the Bible says because of your sin, you're spiritually dead. You're, you're disconnected from the life of God, but because Jesus not just died for your sins so your sins could be washed away, but he now, the Bible now says, you have, been, you have received power to now come alive in this You have power to live out a life and not be a slave to sin anymore. 
So this, num- this is the first thing. We have a leg up in this because we source God. We, have, we, are, we are called to rely upon him, and now he has rescued us from sin and thereby given us the ability, the power to love like Jesus did. But there's still a problem, church. Because there is something inside of us, even as a believer in Jesus, that can harbor grudges, that can choose not to forgive, that can look down on others, still strive for self-importance because they have not followed Paul's example in crucifying the flesh daily. So, number one, we have the gospel, the good news What Jesus has done for us, the cross, the resurrection, sins washed away, now empowered to live in newness of life before God. Problem number two. I'm going to introduce this problem with with that illustration of the locusts. Do you know what happens in that locust that's solitary, that suddenly turns him? into a social creature so that he swarms as large as 70 billion locusts in a swarm. Do you know the other name for swarm that they use is plague? Yeah. Now, that's a negative example, and I realize that. Okay, we're not swarming. We're not a plague church, okay? But there's something that happens in this locust, and, and they only discover this within the last few years. They, there's many theories be, and, and, and it's important to understand why they suddenly become social creatures because when they, if they can keep them from becoming social creatures or limit that, they will limit the destruction that these swarms do almost every year. And some swarms are huge and do massive destruction. Here's what happens. They did a little experiment. And I'm, I'm, I'm a kid at heart. I love experiments. I love doing, and then discovering things. I love discovering things. Here's what they did. They, they put uh, locusts who, who were in that initial stage, and locusts have hairs on their legs. And they touched the legs. They reached inside, I don't know, with a feather or whatever. I don't know, but that, I didn't read that part. But they were able to manipulate and touch the hairs on their legs. And they did it within a certain amount of time over a certain period of time. And that locust turned into, then moved into that next stage of being gregarious. That is a social locust by stroking the hairs on his legs. What they're discovering is that when that happens, there's a chemical that's released in the locust. He grows larger. He changes color and his wings get much larger. They, they are aware that they, they have seen, uh, observed swarms of locusts moving from Africa all the way over the Atlantic Ocean to the Caribbean. Did you know that? Yes. And, and I seriously doubt they glided the whole way, if you were wondering, constantly flapping their wings. They say when you're in the midst, and you saw a picture of a person in the midst of a swarm, it's like 70,000 decks of cards being uh, shuffled all at the same time. It's It's so loud. And just because of that chemical 
that is released in the locust. He changes physically. He changes relationally. He now wants to be with other locusts. Can I just tell you that God has done something so very, and I'm not convinced that the author of Proverbs knew this. God did. The Holy Spirit is anointing him. Even though locusts has no king, yet they move together in ranks. Well, how is that? Well, because God knows what happens to that locust and why they become the social creatures that they do and when they swarm. The Holy Spirit is imparted to every believer. The Holy Spirit, I mean, the Holy Spirit does many things. He regenerates us. He can, before that, he convicts us of sin. But there are two things that Paul focuses on, that, that, that Paul focuses on one of them, that the Holy, we are filled with the Spirit in order to now be empowered with character. The character of Christ, Ephesians 5.18. You can write that down. I've preached on it before, but Ephesians 5.18 talks about God being filled with the Spirit for the very purpose of walking in the character of God. Luke, however, when he writes his gospel and the book of Acts, chooses to focus on a different empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and that is that we are empowered by the Spirit, what's called the baptism with the Spirit, or being filled with the Spirit. Spirit came upon them, fell upon them, it says that they are now empowered and they walk in this power so that now they're able to live lives so that by their speech and by serving in spiritual gifts, they impact those around them. And it's supernatural to the degree that someone who has not been empowered by the Spirit, though they may be a good teacher, when the Spirit of God fills them, they become a supernaturally empowered teacher so that that teaching is not just some natural gifting. And I'm, some are given natural giftings of being able to teach, but when you're empowered by the Spirit in teaching, the Spirit then speaks through you to hearts and does something beyond what you can do. That is, what the, that is the empowerment of the Spirit that Luke talks about. So Paul generally focuses on the character when you're being filled with the Spirit. Character, Luke, on the empowerment. But I'm going to just tell you this. The missing ingredient. What is different between the world and us, church? Though they might get some of these principles that I'm talking to you about. Deny self. You know, it's not about self-importance. Don't be arrogant. You know, to a degree, the Pistons got this. And the Lakers didn't, and so the Pistons won. So they get some of this, but church, we have been given truths, and we have been given the Spirit of God who can change us, just like that chemical that's released in the locust, so that it changes them physically, and it changes how they interact with other locusts, so that they do devastation. Now, for us, when we're filled with the Spirit, something changes in us. Not only are we awakened in a relationship with God, the Bible calls that regeneration, or Jesus called it being born again, but we can now be empowered by that same Spirit so that we can do supernatural things. It is not natural for you to love like Jesus did. It is not natural for us 
to work contrary to our sinful nature. It's just not natural. But you see, you as Christians, as followers of Jesus, have been given a new nature. What Paul calls a new man. And by that, by becoming a new man, you are now able to live in a way that the world doesn't. Actually, the world can't. Something I've always enjoyed in Exodus 33 where Moses is standing before God and he's wanting, God is basically saying, my angel is going to go with you guys but I will not. I might destroy you along the way. So Moses is thinking, okay, an angel could go with us or the God of the universe could go with us. Hmm. And he appeals to God in that moment. And this is what he says. Because he's not satisfied with an angel, which is just simply you know, power there is something about the presence of God, the Holy Spirit in us, by the way. And this is what he says. He says, God, if you don't go with us, meaning, and just send your angel, if you don't go with us, listen to this, what will distinguish us as your people from the rest of the world? Can I just ask you this? In how you live your life, has God done something in you that might distinguish you from who you used to be or from the world? I'm going to tell you this. The world looks on, and they want to discover something in you, in us, that is different. See, that's why there's so many self-help books in the top 10 bestsellers. Because people are looking for something that will change them because they're dissatisfied with their life. And they're starting to have this revelation, maybe I am the one that needs to change and not just my spouse, not just my boss, not just my mother-in-law or whoever. Maybe I need to change. So, but they run after all of these self-help books. And there is one book here that will tell us the truth. You need the gospel. You need the power of the spirit. These two things. And then you will be able to live in this radically different lifestyle. It will be supernatural. You know, if, if you were to turn, turn with me if, if you would. But in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit had just been poured out on the day of Pentecost. And something supernatural happened. And I'm not just talking about them speaking in tongues, but there's something that happened that changed the way they lived. <laughs> and the other Jews that had rejected Jesus looked on and they said, Look at verse 46. Every day they continued to meet together. Acts 2, 46. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and to ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people so that people were added to the church daily. That supernatural church. This supernatural life of how they lived in sacrificing and having all things in common. The sense of fellowship of the Spirit in them. 
forgive me this crude analogy, it's like there's a magnet inside of you and a magnet inside of me. And I realize that magnets, when they're turned a certain way, will actually repel each other. That's not the illustration that I'm giving. But rather, when they're drawn together, there is the spirit in me and the spirit in you, and it should draw us together. The Bible calls this fellowship, koinonia. That's what we see here. That word is actually used in this passage, 42 to 47. This is supernatural. We should be drawn to one another. But so many times, instead, something happens, and it's as if that magnet in one of us, maybe both of us, it, it's turned, and we repel each other. Because the flesh has gotten in there. And the flesh is beginning to lead and not the spirit. Galatians 5 says that they war against one another. The flesh and the spirit, they war against one another. Unfortunately, someone's magnet, if you will, turns and they start repelling. There's hurts, there's offenses. But you know what, church? The, the early church managed to align those magnets, if you will, to allow the spirit to live in them in a way that was powerful. They truly loved one another. And even though the Jews had crucified their leader, daily their minds and their hearts were changing. The world, the, 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 the unbelievers in Jerusalem, their lives were changing. And they now began to believe in the very person that they had crucified. Now, this wasn't just the Roman authorities or the, the priests. You, the whole crowd, you remember, crucify him. Crucify him. They were against him. You're a cult leader. You do things that you shouldn't on the Sabbath. You know, we thought maybe you were the Messiah, but obviously you're not, and they were disappointed. Now they wanted to crucify him on that Passover day something's changed. They now see an empowered people that are living supernaturally. The gospel has changed them, and they're choosing to live by the Spirit, and it was supernatural. And the world, the, those, uh, the others in Jerusalem looked at them, and they said, ah, yes, that's what is missing. That's what I want. And they'll know that you are my, dis my disciples by your love, by the supernatural way that you choose to live. Acts 6. I, I, I can't get into this. Acts 6, 1 through 7. I'm not going to get into the whole thing. But let me just say, the, the church... However, however long they've been around, at least a couple of months, maybe a couple of years, we don't know for sure. They would even go to the extent where they would sell property and give the money and place it at the apostles' feet to be able to be distributed according to people's needs. And no, that was not Christian communism or socialism. What happened, though, is that 
as these needs were being met, there was one particular group called widows, and the widows were apparently being divided. The Hebrew widows and the Grecian or the Greek widows, that is the Hellenist Jewish Christians. That is Jewish Christians, but they practiced a Greek culture lifestyle. They read Greek, whereas the Jewish Christians, not so much so. What happened is that the Grecian Jewish widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food and meeting their needs. Now, this was really important. When this happened and a need came to the apostles, they provided a solution. They needed to delegate. They did it to seven men. If you were to look at the description of these men who were, their job was simply to love people, these widows in particular, and minister to them. Get the needs over here from the rest of the body of Christ and bring them to these, these widows who were in need. But they needed, there were, they were to be certain types of men, not just anyone was going to be called to this. Now, I can understand, okay, you want to be faithful. Look at this. In verse 3, brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom so that the Spirit would have its way in them that they would live supernaturally. And I'm not just talking about they would be doing miracles here and there, though we do see Philip and Stephen and Scripture says both of them, those men, did miracles. So we know that not just the apostles did miracles, but others did as well. But they were empowered by the Spirit to live daily a supernatural life. Later, Stephen is said to be a man full of faith. So I'm going to assume that this being filled with the Spirit daily and, and faith kind of go hand in hand. My point is this, the church called men filled with the Spirit and the churches, they're, they're praying, they're seeking to meet one another's needs. They're living supernatural lives. What happens? Look at verse 7. Here's what happens when the church saw a need and they gave themselves to that need and they were willing to sacrifice some personal wants in order to meet the personal needs of these widows. Here's what happened. Look at this. Verse 7. So, or the Greek word is and, and the word of God spread. But I need, the NIV says so because we're, we need to see how verse 7 is connected to the previous six verses. So, the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And listen to this. A large number of priests became obedient to the faith. You see, in the Old Testament, it was the priests who were the ones given charge of taking care of the widows. And now these priests look on and they say, wow, these Christians know how to live. And I'll put words in their mouths. They would have said, they know how to live supernaturally because I can't live that way. Man, the, mm, they know how to love each other. 
It's as if there's magnets inside of them drawing to each. Okay, maybe not. But the truth is the spirit of God was in them and they're saying, I cannot live my life when I know that others are in such great need. Jesus said this, inasmuch as you have done it to the least of these my brothers, you've done it to me. And I can remember even before seminary, but especially in seminary, what does Jesus mean by the least of these, my brothers? Because sometimes brothers, like in a Sermon on the Mount, means kinsmen. But that's the only time Jesus used the word brothers to mean fellow Jews. The rest of the time, and there's several, he uses it to refer to followers of him, those doing the will of God. Remember when his mother and his brothers came to see him and someone says, hey, Jesus, your fam is here. Your mom, your brothers, they want to talk to you. And Jesus looked around and he said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? But he starts pointing to them, you are and you are those who do the will of the Father. Interesting. I mean, Jesus, in Matthew 25, when he says, in as much as you've done it to the least of these my brothers, you've done it to me. He could have said, in as much as you've done it to anyone, you've done it to me. And I'm only going gonna, gonna to be short on this. So much can be said on this. But church, we are called first and foremost to one another, to love one another, to meet the needs of one another in Jesus's body. And then after that, the needs of the world. Don't become weary in doing good. When the proper time, you'll reap a harvest. Um, Then he says, do good to all people, especially to the family of believers. We are called to love one another. There's spirit in you and the spirit in me. It draws us together. And I want to know, how may I serve you today? Because my life just ain't all about me. My life is about living before God, regardless of the sacrifice, regardless of the persecution, regardless of the want in my life. I am poured out, like Paul said, as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. I live for you. I want to meet your needs. And that's not just for priests or pastors. That's for the body of Christ. That's for all of us. Because, see, we're all called to live supernaturally. Rescued because of what Christ has done for us, the gospel. Walking in the power of the spirit in a supernatural lifestyle. See, these two things the world does not have. It can, but it does not have. But church, and I'm going to conclude with this, when we get it, when we learn how to not just say, I'm going to follow Jesus, but daily crucify self, daily say, I am here not to see how high on the business ladder I can climb or how much money I can make or some other distraction out there in the world. Not that money is wrong, but it can be a distraction. When I say, I will not be distracted by that, but I am going to live my life for God to do his will, and that means not being arrogant, not being filled with selfish ambition, those two things that destroy teamwork. But I'm going to make a choice. I will live for you.
I tell you what, when you take that principle and you put it in a marriage, it brings life into a marriage. You, any relationship, it brings life. Why? Because the world says, hey, this marriage thing or this friendship thing, it's a 50-50 deal. And if you don't come halfway, forget about me doing that. Mm-mm. Jesus says, do you want that marriage to last? Do you want that relationship to be mm, an amazing relationship? It's not this 50-50 thing. You go all the way. And Jesus even said this, and expect nothing in return. What? But see, that's what he did. And he laid his life down to prove it. So church, this is the lifestyle that God has called us to. You don't need me to be as a leader to be able to facilitate this organization of loving one another because it's the spirit of God in you that does it. I'm not saying there's no place for leaders, but locusts have no king. And yet, they swarm, they, they organize, they, they move together in unity as one group. Can we do no less? Empowered by a spirit that allows us to live supernaturally. Can you stand with me? And if we could have the lights. I'm just going to ask us, church, what, what needs to happen in here for us so that we can live like this? We have a couple that's going to be getting married in less than a week. Wow. And, yeah. Nathan, Andrew, and Alyssa tying the knot in six days. Great, awesome. Uh, I want to pray for you guys, but God has called you guys to live this way in a supernatural relationship. And it's going to be so hard sometimes, but you're going to have the privilege of saying, you know what? I have Jesus. I have the spirit in me, and I can live that lifestyle he's called me to. Even when it's so hard, even when you think you are so right and my spouse is so wrong, he's still going to empower you to be united, to love one another as Christ loved you. I want to just pray for you guys, but then I want to pray for the rest of us. This is hard, church, because there's a resistance, even in Christians. Let's practice that daily crucifying of ourselves and our wants to live for others, okay? Father, I just pray for your blessing right now on Nathan Andrew, on Alyssa. They're going to be making this commitment to each other before you, God. And they are going to be saying, till death do us part. I will love you. I will lay my life down for you. I will serve you in sickness and in health wealth or poverty. And I just ask you, Father, for a blessing to be upon them as they become one flesh by your, by your spirit, God, that they would live intentionally. They would be a light in this dark world and they would daily point people 
to Jesus. If not by their words, but by how they love one another. And I ask you, Father, for each of us, that we would live supernaturally like that as well. Daily crucifying me. My arrogance and my desire for self-importance. And we would live out this lifestyle of selflessness and serving others. God, if there is something in our lives, problems that loom so large, they're distracting me. Unforgiveness that blocks my ability now to love others. And I just ask you, Father, set us free from these things we would live that life, that supernatural life in your spirit. Right now, we just surrender. We surrender our distractions, our hurts and offenses, that thing in me that wants to be first screaming for people, admire me. Look, look at me. And I just ask you, Father, set us free from that. I just ask you, Lord, that our hearts would be yielded to you. Thank you, Father. Jesus, you're our first love. Everything flows from that. Do this supernatural work every day in our lives that the world may know that you sent your son and you love him. In Jesus' name, amen.